Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Good morning, everybody online. We're glad you could join us as well. Uh, this is a sidewalk, or a crosswalk, rather. Uh, it's from London, England, and it looks pretty unremarkable for the most part. It looks like every other crosswalk you've probably encountered in your life, except maybe for uh, the large stenciled font towards the bottom there that says, look right. You see, London is one of the 35% of nations on earth that drives on the wrong side of the road. Now, in the United States and 65% of other nations, we all drive on the right-hand side of the road. Now, I'm going to just turn around because I tried this first service, the right-left thing, but everything looks opposite to you. So, bear with me. We drive on the right side of the road, which means oncoming traffic comes from the left. But if you were to approach a crosswalk in England and look to the left for oncoming traffic, you would make a large splat sound in all likelihood. And the British government recognized this, and so they put these large, you know, stenciled fonts there at the beginning of the, the crosswalk, look right, pay attention, things are different here. And they did that because they recognized it's very difficult for people to unlearn things. Now, unlearning is not the process of forgetting information that we once knew. Rather, unlearning is learning, or choosing rather, to operate according to new information or a new paradigm. Uh, a good illustration of this, there was a journalist who actually took a trip to London. He had to rent a car and, and drive around. And he said learning to drive on the left side of the road really wasn't that challenging. I mean, once you got used to the instruments and where everything was and like being on the other side of the car, he said all the mechanics transferred over, a lot of the rules of the road were the same. That wasn't difficult. The challenge was unlearning how to drive on the right side of the road. And by that, he meant every time he came to an intersection or to a four-way stop or to a traffic light or a crosswalk, his natural instinct was to expect other drivers to do the exact opposite of what they were about to do in reality. And he had to consciously remind himself, don't follow your instincts. This is how we do things here. Stay on the left, look right, all of those things. He had to choose to operate according to a new set of information, a new paradigm. That's unlearning in a nutshell. And you and I, we do that on a fairly consistent basis, really, in our everyday lives in a lot of different contexts. Uh, sometimes we do it in the context of our jobs or of business. You know, ways of doing business change. Markets evolve. We can't just keep doing things the way that we're familiar. Or maybe the nature of our job changes, and we have to do things a new way. Maybe there's a new system at work that, that our, our supervisor is using, and we can't just keep relying on our instincts. There's a, a set of information we have to choose to adhere to now, despite how much we may want to just rely on what's comfortable. Or we do this sometimes with technology. You know, I got a new phone recently, and adjusting to that new phone has been a process because none of the buttons are where they're supposed to be. So I'll tap it, and I'll flick it, and I'll push a button, and then like some ding or alarm goes off. I said, no, I, I wanted to play Wordle. What are you doing? Like, have you ever had that experience learning to use a new phone? You have to unlearn the old way and adapt to this new way of doing things. We experience this in an ideological uh, context in a really personal way sometimes. There's new information that challenges our beliefs or our convictions or our worldview, and maybe we have to adopt or adapt to that. We have to forget, hey, this isn't the way things work. This isn't the way I operate anymore. This part of the journey is actually a significant aspect of the Christian faith. Unlearning a certain way of thinking about reality in the world, adopting or adapting rather to a new paradigm. 
to new information, revelation that's been given to us. And that's challenging. And that challenge is at the heart of this new series that we're starting today called Mindfield. There is a battle of ideas being waged in our minds every single day. On one side, we have a worldview, a paradigm, ideas that we have inherited simply by virtue of being born when and where we were born. Living in this culture, it informs how we see the world around us. On the other hand, we have ideas, a worldview that's been revealed to us through Scripture, through the gospel. And these two ideas, these two paradigms, they don't always gel. In fact, oftentimes they conflict. And you and I are caught in the middle trying to sort through what is truth? How do I make it in this world? How how do I I discern my way in a very complicated moral landscape and a quickly changing reality around me? What do I believe? That's at the heart of this series that we're going through starting today. Today we're just going to kind of get a lay of the land. We're going to look at the battlefield, if you will, in the book of Romans chapter 12. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open that up to the book of Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament. Uh, If you don't have your Bible with you, don't sweat it. We always put our passages on the screen behind for you to follow along, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app. Tap, well, there you go. I tapped my phone and it came on. New paradigm, you know? You can follow along in the FCC Monmouth app. Just click the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, and you'll find our sermon notes tool that has our passage pulled up, ready for you to engage with, get the most out of our time together. So as we get going here and rolling with this idea, I want to propose an idea or make a statement, I don't think it's challenging. It has an internal logic to it, where even if you're not real sure what you believe about the gospel or believe about God and Jesus and all this stuff, even if you're on the fence, we're glad you're here, by the way. We can hopefully help you navigate that. But even if you're not sure what you believe, I think you'll agree with this statement because it just has an internal logic to it. It's pretty straightforward. It's this. If the gospel is true, God deserves our full and total worship. If the gospel is true, then God deserves our full and total worship. That's the proposition. I don't think it's too outlandish. And it's the logical conclusion that our chapter starts with in chapter 12, verse 1. The first 11 chapters have been laying out what the gospel is in a pretty thorough way. Chapter 12 starts off with a transition or a conjunction, rather. Therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, we're just going to pause there for a second, God's mercy is a pretty big term. It is a a term, sort of a catch-all term. The antecedent of that is, is huge. It's actually those first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. If you were to think of the entire letter in a structural way, you could divide it in half right at chapter 12, verse 1. And the first 11 chapters are one proposition, the gospel. Here's what it means. Chapter 12 onward through 16 is, here's what we do in light of that. Here's how we ought to live and respond. That's a pretty common pattern in the writings of the Apostle Paul. This book's no different. So God's mercy then refers to everything that's been laid out in the first 11 chapters of this book. In light of the fact that we were hopeless to save ourselves and could not be righteous by our own merit, in light of the fact that God in His great compassion sent His Son into this world to find us, to forgive us, to make us new, to restore us, and to make us His own at an insanely high cost of His own life, In light of the fact that God has bestowed upon us His very Spirit to empower us to overcome temptation in this world and to discern truth from lies in this reality, in light of all the great things that God has done for us, brothers and sisters, I urge you, 
passage goes on to say, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is your true and proper worship. That's our proposition in biblical terms. If the gospel is true in light of God's mercy, then He deserves our full and total worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that idea of sacrifice is probably a familiar notion, even if we haven't participated individually in that, because Christianity doesn't require sacrifice in the traditional sense that a lot of ancient religions did. But we all are probably familiar. It's just simply the idea of bringing something of great personal cost and value before God and dedicating it to Him as an act of thankfulness or an act of gratefulness, an act of worship, in other words. In the ancient world, if we owned a field, we would take from the first of our crops and we would bring it before God and we would say, here is the first of my fruits. This is yours now. I have no claim to it. If we owned a vineyard, we'd take the first of our vintage and we would take it before God to the temple and we would give it and we would say, this is yours now. I have no claim to it. It's no longer mine. In the case of animal sacrifice, if you owned livestock, you would take from the first of your calves and you'd take it to the priest and he would put it on an altar and he would slay it and then he would butcher it and the meat would be used for various temple processes. It's not like they just had a bunch of dead goats behind the temple or anything. Waste not, want not. But that was the idea. You bring this goat and you say, I no longer have claim to it. This is God's. It's not mine. And it's that last picture in particular that's in view here when we talk about a living sacrifice. And it's what makes this phrase so peculiar. Because a sacrifice in the minds of ancient people that Paul's writing to is something that is slain. Its life ends. That's how it severs, or rather we sever claim to it and God owns it. So what is a living sacrifice then? Because that's an odd kind of paradoxical picture here. It's kind of drawing this this image in our minds, not of somebody going before God on the altar and saying, God, I just love you so much. But rather saying, God, I love you so much, here's my life, I renounce claim to it. It's not mine anymore. It's yours. I put it on an altar, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to keep living, but I'm going to live in a different way now. I'm going to live as if this life belongs to you. So I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to work on Monday, but I'm going to go as somebody who is working before the Lord in honor of Him. And I'm going to come home and I'm going to serve my family, but I'm going to serve them as somebody who belongs to you in your name and the way that you call me to. I'm going to participate in my community. I'm going to be a, a citizen. And I'm going to be a neighbor. I'm going to be a friend. I'm going to be a coworker. I'm going to be all these things, but I'm going to do it in a way that reflects who you are because you own this life now. It's yours. That is a sacrificial, a living sacrifice kind of worship or full and total worship, as we might say. And that seems reasonable. In fact, our passage says this is your true and proper worship. If we were to go back to the ancient Greek text that that this is all translated from, sometimes that word is translated in other literature as reasonable. This is just what makes sense. If God has done this great and miraculous and merciful thing, here's the proper, reasonable response for it all. You might think about it in, in these terms. When I was 16 years old, uh, my, I was blessed in that my parents were able to purchase my first car for me. It was a very generous gift. But there were definitely strings attached to that gift. It was understood that I would drive that vehicle in a way that represented the family well, or at the very least, go to the next county over where nobody knew us and be, you know, drive over there. 
it was understood that I would maintain that vehicle. You're going to get you the oil change, the brake pads checked. You're going to do all the routine maintenance that's necessary for that to keep running well. It was understood that I would insure and register that vehicle as the law required. And it was especially understood that I would use that vehicle to serve the family in a way that was helpful. Take your sister to school. Pick her up from school. Take her to dance practice. Pick her up from dance practice. Go to the grocery store. I forgot milk. All of those things, you know. I had a lot of freedom in how I used that vehicle. It was my vehicle, but it was understood I would use that vehicle in a way that honored the family, which seems completely reasonable because, after all, who bought the car, right? And that's sort of our scenario here. We've been given a brand new life. We've been restored and redeemed and made new. We've been given a hope We've been given this incredibly generous gift that was incredibly costly. It required the death of the only begotten Son of God. It was purchased by God, and He gives it to us freely through faith. But there's an expectation that we will use this life in a way that honors the giver. Completely reasonable that we would honor God and worship Him with all that we are and all that we do and all that we say and all of our relationship, that we would worship Him totally and fully. But this living sacrifice kind of worship, it doesn't just manifest out of thin air. It's not just a simple matter of let's read the Bible, let's do what it says, let's avoid what it condemns, because if you've been alive for longer than 60 seconds, you've probably figured out life gets very complicated very quickly. We live in an ever-shifting, complicated moral landscape that sometimes leaves us confused because the Bible doesn't speak directly to how we ought to handle each and every situation, so what do we do? How do we honor God? How do we live sacrificially before Him in a complicated world? Our passage actually addresses that. We just keep reading. Look at verse 2. It says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you want to know God's will for your life, in other words, if you want to know how He would have you navigate these situations, if you want to know how He would steer you in these complicated moral matters, if you want to honor Him with a life that worships Him as best you can, it begins with a renewed mind. The way we think matters so much, being able to view this world through a godly lens and discern it and make sense of it according to the truth that He's revealed. Our full and total worship, in other words, doesn't begin with what we do. It certainly encompasses that, but it begins with how we think. The mind is such an important faculty to dedicate to God. And we might ask why. Why the mind? Why not the heart? Why not our emotions? Why not the hands? Why not what we do, you know? Why the mind? Why is it so crucial? I was reading a book this week uh, by a philosopher, theologian, apologist. He wears all those titles. His name is J.P. Moreland. And he, he wrote in this book a phrase that answers our question so succinctly that I said, you know what, I'm going to steal that and pretend like I said it, and I'm going to share it with you guys. He said, beliefs are the rails upon which our lives run. Beliefs are the rails upon which our lives run. And when he talks about beliefs, I want us to understand what he means. We're not just talking about ideas that we agree with. We're talking about convictions that shape how we view reality and the way the world works. 
Those are very different levels of importance. For example, I have a belief, an idea that I agree with, that the St. Louis Cardinals are one of the best baseball teams to ever play the game. Amen. And I have reasons for that belief. Some of them are statistical. Some of them are entirely personal. But here's the thing with that belief. It doesn't have any impact on how I live my life. It doesn't dictate my moral code. It doesn't change how I view myself. It doesn't change how I interact with anybody other than Cubs fans. It doesn't really have much weight in my life, right? And if I'm wrong about it, that's okay. That's no, you know, no skin off my nose. It's not that important to me. It's an idea I agree with. It's very different from my conviction or my belief about dental hygiene. I believe dental hygiene is very important. In fact, I believe it's so important that it does have bearing on how I live my life. It has bearing at least twice a day for two minutes at a time. It has bearing on what I teach my children and the level of intensity with which I will wrestle my youngest to get those teeth brushed. It has a lot of impact on my life, and it shapes how I view the way the world works. If you don't brush your teeth, you stand a very high likelihood of enduring pain or even worse, avoidable financial burden. This is a conviction. It's something I understand that dictates how I live my life and how I view the way the world works. Do you see the difference? The question then becomes for us, what are our convictions? What are the ideas that form the rails upon which our whole life runs? Well, if we're people of the gospel, I hope... It's those first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. What this is all a response to, the God's mercy and all of its antecedents. And there are some powerful convictions in there that have the ability to shape our lives in this profound way. For instance, there is an almighty God that is responsible for and stands in authority over creation. Is that just an idea that I agree with? Or is that a conviction that shapes how I see this world and the way that it works. This idea that left to our own devices, we were hopelessly unrighteous, every one of us. But in His great compassion, God loved us enough to send His Son to seek and save us, even die on our behalf that we could be made new. Is that just an idea that I agree with? Or is that a conviction that shapes how I view reality? Because if it's the latter, it's going to have a profound impact on how I see myself or how I see others or what I understand the purpose of life to be. This idea that there are powers beyond human comprehension, two kingdoms duking it out, one firmly entrenched, rooted in deceit and bent on destruction, the other inbreaking, rooted in truth and seeking our salvation and we're caught in the middle. Do I, is that like an idea I just agree with because that's what my religious upbringing teaches? Or is that a conviction that I have about reality and what's really happening in me and around me every day? Because if it's the latter, it's going to drastically impact how I see the world at work, how I understand events happening around me, and my reaction to the challenges of this world. You see, these are deep convictions all wrapped up in this gospel package. And if I am somebody that says, yes, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what I believe, these are the rails over which my life is going to run. 
it's going to have an impact on my life and how I live and how I react and, and how I interact with people. It's going to lead to a life that is fully dedicated to Him in worship because that's the true and proper and reasonable response to who He is and what He's done. That's the good news. That's the best scenario. The challenge, though, is that these convictions that we hold are not the only convictions that we hold. Simply by virtue of of growing up where we grew up, being born when we were born, we have inherited an entire other worldview, an entire collection of ideas that are buried in the deep recesses of our minds. As we said earlier, these are oftentimes uh, opposing, they are uh, opposing one another, controversial to one another. There is a dissonance here. They do not coexist. It is a dissonance that oftentimes leads us to question things or, or, or to doubt things or to adopt attitudes and mindsets and behaviors and, and viewpoints that are in direct contradiction to, to what has been revealed to us in Scripture that we profess to believe. In other words, we're kind of stuck on, on two diverging rails, and it pulls us apart. Something's got to give. If we were just to wrap it all up in, in a very simple phrase, we would say there is a war being waged in our minds. And our passage, if we look a little closer at this, it teases this tension out and brings it to the forefront. If we look back at verse 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's kind of two camps summarized here in two different phrases. One of them is this pattern of the world. If we were to get a little more literal with, with the Greek language, it would be the pattern of this age. The prevailing mindset, the zeitgeist, the worldview at large. This is the mind of the world. This is the mind of the flesh. This is what we have inherited. It is a mindset that that we have inherited and that we cultivate through pop culture. It is a mindset that is cultivated and planted even in the, the deep philosophical history of Western civilization. I know that sounds really big and heady, but all of these really big ideas we have inherited and internalized, and there's a series of stones that form the foundation of our Western American worldview that we operate by and just assume this is the way that the world works. They are convictions, and some of them are helpful, and some of them are in opposition to truth, and some of them are challenging, and we can look at them, and we can start to ask questions about them. Is this really how the world works? You take something like naturalism. This is the, the understanding that Natural law and process explains the entirety of creation's existence. It explains the entirety of human nature and response and the way we live and why we do what we do. In other words, nature is absolute. This was a crucial philosophical uh, cornerstone in the development of the Western mind. And we've all inherited that. You take something like uh, our view of matter. You know, all the stuff that makes the stuff that we interact with. We probably never stop and quandary, you know, oh, what is matter exactly? How does it work or function? Rather, we say it in simple ways like, yeah, you put water in the freezer, it turns to ice. We get that. We interact with matter all the time, and we understand that matter operates consistently according to some observable processes and patterns and stimuli. That, that just makes sense. It's the basis of the scientific method. It's, it's benefited us immensely. There's nothing wrong with that. Naturalism would take that and take it like a step further to say that matter only ever operates according to natural processes, that natural law is absolute, it can never be violated, and therefore things that are supernatural are just impossible. Now, as people of the gospel, we might hear that and go, no, I take some issue with that statement. 
But it's an idea that's buried in the deep recesses of our minds, and it impacts us in ways we might not suspect or think about. For instance, if you've ever been reading the Bible and you come across its claims of the miraculous, or talk of of spiritual realities and angels and demons, or the greatest claim of Scripture that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, if you've ever read those and said, you know, I'm just, I really struggle with accepting that. I just don't see how that could be true. Or you think, you know what, maybe ancient people just didn't understand the way that the world works, and so they've, they've created some sort of miraculous explanation of natural phenomenon. If we've ever had those sort of thoughts or conversations, this is why. Buried in the deep recesses of our minds is a naturalism that's competing with this reality of how things really are, two diverging rails, and we're caught in the middle trying to make peace and sense of them. Or maybe it's a little more personal. If you've ever struggled with something or you have this tendency in your life that you're trying to rid yourself of, maybe it's deceit, maybe it's anger, maybe it's lust, whatever, and you've ever said to yourself, well, this is just how I am. This is how I was born. It runs in my family. It's genetic, whatever. We're looking at nature and saying, this is absolute. The laws of nature explain everything. It couldn't be that there is something spiritually corrupt within my heart that God wants to remedy. No, the laws of nature, they explain it. If you've ever had that conversation, it's because there's a naturalism buried in the recesses of our mind. Or if you've ever seen somebody receive the consequences of their actions, harsh consequences, and said, good, that's what they deserve. You can't be doing that in this world. And had zero compassion or zero mercy or zero you know, ability to look at them and wish there was something better for them. If, if this is cold, calculated, yep, that's what they get. Maybe that's a little bit of survival of the fittest buried in the recesses of our minds. Because everybody knows only the, the suitable survive, only the most capable and adaptable survive and deserve to thrive. You see, these ideas of naturalism buried within the recesses of our minds, and they show up in some surprising ways, not just big, heady, theological ways, but in everyday practical ways about how we understand ourselves, and we understand other people, and we understand the nature of life and relationships and what God is doing in this world. As you can probably see, it is a mindset that is pretty divergent from the renewed mind, this other faction that our passage talks about. This is a mind that looks at the world and is informed by what is revealed to us. It is a a mind that is cultivated by God's Word and by Scripture and by His Spirit. It is a mind that understands that God is saying, "This, this is how things actually work. This is who I am and how I've declared things to be. We might look at something like a matter and say, yeah, we believe that 99.99999% of the time matter is going to behave according to, to observable processes that are repeatable and so on. But we also believe that, you know, as we said earlier, there's this supreme God who stands as responsible and authoritative over creation. And we also believe that if that creator God says do something different, nature responds in glory to him. So that 99.999% of time, water molecules are going to flow in and around and through each other. But on that 0.01% of the time where this almighty God says part and reveal the dry land, yeah, I'm okay with that. Or an optic nerve that's damaged 99.999% of the time, that's going to result in in a permanent blindness within somebody. But that 0.01% of the time where this almighty God stands up and says be healed and matter moves in a supernatural way, I'm okay with that. He can do what he wants. Or that 99.9999% of the time where a deceased body lays in a tomb, it's going to stay dead and in the tomb. But that 0.01% of the time where this almighty God says, Lazarus, come out, and life responds to the one who made it, 
I don't have a hard time reconciling that. It's a very different way of looking at the world. It's a very different way of looking at nature and creation and understanding its purpose. It's a very different idea and comprehension of reality and the way that it works. And this also is buried in our minds as people of the gospel. So on the one hand, we have the pattern of this world where everybody around us is saying, this is what's true and this is what works. We have the renewed mind, the scripture, the spirit saying, this is how it works, this is what's true. And these diverging rails sometimes pull us apart down the middle. Something's got to give. So what's it going to be? Is it going to be the, the revealed truth of God where we compromise and say, no, I think the world's got this one right? Or is it going to be the reality that we've inherited in favor of the one that the creator of all things tells us is true and righteous and good and pleasing and holy to him? One that leads away or one that renders up a life of full and total worship. That's where we find ourselves in this minefield and the command, the call to action in verse 2 there is actually the verb between those two camps. Be transformed. Be changed. Not just in the way that you feel because of the gospel. Not just in your behavior because of the gospel. Not even in, in some of the ideas that you agree with because of the gospel. Be transformed in the way you understand the nature of this world and what's really happening. Be renewed and restored in how you see the truth. And that is a much more complicated endeavor. It's not a simple matter of learning the right ideas. There's also this complicated matter, as we said earlier, of unlearning some old and outdated information. That's the challenge of the Christian life. And that's the challenge we're going to take up and embark upon over the next several weeks. The series started as four weeks, and then I got really excited, and it turned into seven weeks. So I like this topic because honestly, church... This is a time in our history where we have forgotten the sacred art of thinking. And you can see the consequences all over our society. If you ever wonder, why are things the way that they are? You know, these things that just make so much sense or seem so normal or just seem like they're, they're common sense. What's going on with that? We have lost the sacred art of thinking. And I want to recover that. So for the next three weeks, starting next week, we are going to be looking at some very common and pervasive falsehoods that have invaded our way of thinking. Not for the point of punching down at our culture, but for taking a very hard look in the mirror and saying, how am I compromised in my thinking? How can I be renewed in my mind? Three weeks of that, and then I'm going to go on vacation because I have vacation time and my wife tells me I have to take it. Then after that, we're going to have three weeks of very practical, what can I do to partner with God in this transformation, in this renewing of my mind? Spoiler, it does involve some reading. And some of us might say, oh, I'm not much of a reader, you know, I, I'm not really into that, it's really hard for me. Get the audio book, do something, because we cannot, we live in an age and a time where there's so much information so readily available that we ignore so that we can turn on Joe Rogan and listen to a podcast about nonsense. Nothing against Joe Rogan. Sometimes he's interesting. But you get my point. We have so much information available to us. We need to make use of it to fill our hearts and our minds with God's truth and to be renewed by it. Because every time we turn on the TV, every time we open our web browser, every time we use whatever social media app we use, we are being taught the pattern of this world. It's time to be transformed by the renewing of this thing, which is so vitally important to this life of full and total worship that God deserves. Amen? All right, let's pray.
Oh, sorry, I forgot the homework. There's homework every week. I know, that's the other thing. You guys are like, oh, nuts, we almost got away with it. Next week, we're going to be talking about truth a lot. So this week, I'd like us to take this question and reflect on it. Who are the voices defining truth in my life? And I know we're at church, and so we know what we ought to say, God, Jesus, the Bible, right? I want to know the actual answer, though, because we listen to truth from so many different voices. We listen to newscasters and anchors. We listen to podcasts. We listen to periodicals and journalists. We listen to politicians. We listen to our athletes. We listen to cultural icons. We listen to so many different voices. It might just be somebody that we have coffee with on Friday mornings. We have so many voices speaking into our lives, different ideas, different viewpoints, different understandings, and we internalize those and accept those. And what I want us to reflect on is, should we? I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just wanting us to be aware. Who are the voices that are speaking into my life that I say, that's the truth? Reflect on that as deeply as you can, because that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Now, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mind, and we thank you for the gift that it is. And we even thank you for the challenging moments that we live in, in our culture, and our world that cause us to stop and ask questions, because in those complexities, we have this opportunity to see the world's way and to see your way, and to see what we are told is true versus what is revealed. And I pray that you would give us discernment and eyes to acknowledge that tension, to wrestle through it, and to come through on the other side as faithful, to discern ideas from uh, true ideas from falsehoods, to discern morally upright and just ways of life from those that are compromised. It's not easy, but I ask that you would give us the insight, that you would guide us through your spirit, that you would fill us with your word, that Christian men and women and thinkers of the ages would speak into our lives and help formulate a lens through which we can best honor you with our minds, that we can best honor you with our hearts and our actions as a result, and that we can render up a life of worship that you rightfully and properly deserve because your goodness has brought us to this place and your gospel has promised us so much. So let us respond in a reasonable way and give you everything we are. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.